Hey, welcome to the Church 1122. I'm Ryan Stone, one of the pastors here. Um, you're going to need a Bible, and you're going to need to go to Acts chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, and that is our, uh, let's see, New Year's gift to you now. We, they just keep changing. If you come back in February, we'll give you a Valentine's Day gift. That Bible is for you. Open at Acts 25. We have been for 15 months now, verse by verse, to the book of Acts, and it will end one day, we think. We're not sure. We've got at least a couple months left of the book of Acts. And then when we get through, through Acts, we're going into our Lent series, which this year we're calling Seven Deadly Sins. It's really just our attempt to make anyone who's Catholic feel at home. I uh, want to make you feel warm and welcome. But really what we're going to talk about is how the cross redeemed us uh, and has given us victory over sin. And so we're going to look at those seven deadly sins. Acts chapter 25, this series that we're doing this week and next week. Uh, we're just calling it Life's Not Fair. Now, here's the truth. Um, you don't need us to call a series Life's Not Fair for you to understand that, right? If you don't, if you don't, you know, just rewind a couple of days, go to Christmas, right? And you're opening your presents. And, uh, and, and I'm not, life was very fair to me this Christmas. I've got like a two and a half year old who just ran Christmas for the house. She told us when we could eat. She told us when to open presents. Um, our other kid is 10 months old. We have two little beautiful girls. And uh, so we didn't write names on any of the presents because we figured one just going to chew on them, the other one's going to hog them, so they can both have them all. And so Emery would bring it out and go, oh, Blakely, this one's yours, and ooh, this one's me. And all the small ones went to Blakely and all the big ones Emery kept. I don't know what that was about. And I, I mean, it was a great Christmas. I got some cool gifts. I got this watch. This watch has like a, a brown strap. It's the first time in my life that I've been able to wear a brown watch and brown shoes and be hip and cool, Right? For all my marriage, I've been trying to convince my wife, if it's got a rubber band on it on the watch, it matches everything. It's fine. And so it was a great Christmas for me. But for some of you, you open those boxes, and you're expecting the, um, the expression of love, of love from a family. And you open it, and you go, oh, you don't really love me, huh? You know, you can look at that present, and you're like, this is really... What, who gave this to you and you re-gifted it, right? And so you go to Christmas and you get all these gifts and sometimes you're like, man, this is not fair. You get on Facebook because now when you're done with Christmas, what do you need to do? You need to go grade your Christmas morning out and you need to see if you, where you scored on the whole national scale. So you go to Facebook then you look and you go, okay, definitely better than them. And uh, oh, they, they beat us on this. So you go to Christmas and, and we're, on, we're on Facebook looking at Christmas and one of Blair's friends pulls up uh, we pulls up a picture, and it's like a two-year-old with an iPad. And I'm like, oh, good, Santa brought her parents an iPad. No, her parents gave her an iPad, which I think, I'm thinking two things. One, what are you smoking? And then as I realized they bought their kid an iPad, I'm like, what are you selling? I mean, like, if you got that kind of money, you're smoking and selling it, right? And so as I'm looking on Facebook, I'm just, I'm just looking at it going, man, like, life's not fair. Like, this two-year-old got an, got an iPad, and then as I close down Facebook, the desktop picture on my computer there's just these two little kids named Ronus and Ryan that live in Rukangiri, uh, Uganda. And uh, Ryan's literally named after me because our mission tr- team went there. And they said we'd literally save this little 18-month-old boy's life. And so they named him after me, which that'll make you tear up. I mean, I don't cry because I work out, but, you know, other people on our team were crying. And so I'm looking. I pull Facebook down, and I'm looking at this picture of Ronus and Ryan. And my heart breaks, and I begin to go, Huh. I wonder if they even had Christmas dinner. Like, I wonder if they even got something to eat today. And so the reality of this, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. I'm just trying to bring us to the attention that life's not fair. Like a two-year-old in, in Atlanta got an iPad, and a two-year-old in Uganda may or may not even eat on Christmas dinner. And so I don't have to uh, convince you that life's not fair. The question we have to ask is, if life's not fair, uh, then what are my rights and what are my responsibilities? And next week, we're going to wrestle with the question, um, is, Bibli- is fairness even a biblical value at all? And so for the next two weeks, we're going to wrestle with this truth that life isn't fair. And we've been walking through the last few chapters, and uh, the Apostle Paul has really been experiencing life that's not fair. And where we're going to find Paul today, he's still in jail in Caesarea. And if you remember Paul's story, he was converted. Uh, he began to preach the gospel, to share the love of Jesus. He'd go city to city and plant churches. In almost every city, he would get run out of town with people either trying to stone him or, or just flat out kill him. Uh, and they've been running after him. So finally, he gets to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. Uh, the Jewish people, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers, begin to say that he was causing riots and that he was... Um, he was uh, bringing impurities into the temple and that he deserved 
death. And so in the, in the middle of the night, they take him to Caesarea. And at this point, Paul has been in prison for accusations that cannot be proven for over two years. And this is where, the, where, the, where last week the governor Felix uh, gets fired because he did not do a good job of keeping uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. They, did, they weren't getting along. And so Felix gets fired. And then all of a sudden Festus comes in, this new governor comes in, and Paul's still sitting in prison. For what? For making known the name of Jesus. For sharing love with people who didn't know the love of Jesus. And he's in prison. So let's go to Acts chapter 25, verse 1. You guys ready? Right, we'll try that again in a little bit, and I'll see if anybody else woke up. Uh, now, three days after Festus had arrived from the Providence, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Fe- Fe- Festus gets in. His first act as governor is to go make sure that the Jewish-Gentile relationship is healthy, so he goes straight to Jerusalem. Because what he knows is as long as he has Jerusalem in his pocket, as long as he's hand-in-hand hand with the leaders of Jerusalem, the whole region will be peaceful and will do what he wants. Verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. If you remember a few weeks ago in chapter 23, Paul was in Jerusalem, and uh, they had an, uh, the 40 just guys that lived in Jerusalem, 40 guys took an oath that when they took Paul out of jail and brought him over to the temple, to try him at the Sanhedrin, these 40 guys were going to lay in ambush and kill him. Well, they found out, and they moved him to Caesarea. So now it's escalated. It was just 40, you know, just, just 40 Johnny, John Doe's, just 40 guys that were willing to do it. Now in, in chapter 3 or chapter 25 here, uh, the chief priest, like the guy who you would think would not condone murder, is now like the leading cause. He's like, all right, send him here. On his way here, the chief priest is going to go uh, and take him out, right? When the lead pastor of the church is like figuring out how to kill a guy, you got some issues in the church, right? It's just, it's just a number one sign something's not right in the church. So they go to Festus and they go, Festus, bring him to us. We're going to take him out. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So Festus, whether it was a, uh, a, a wise decision to, to keep Paul safe or whether it was just a, you know, cost too much money, it was too much work to bring him to Jerusalem, Festus looks at these Jewish leaders. They come to him. Their very first favor is send us Paul. And, and Festus goes, I'm not going to send you Paul, but let's go back to Caesarea. And we get there, we'll put him on trial. We'll, we'll, if there's anything wrong with him, we'll, we'll, get him, we'll get him handled, okay? Verse 6. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So he took his seat in the court. There's a formal hearing. Paul has now been called uh, into trial once again. Verse 7, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So at this point, Luke has, in the, in the several chapters before, over and over again, has written out the, that their accusations are that Paul uh, defamed the temple, that he was, uh, he was causing riots against Caesar, and so over and over again. So at this point, Luke's like, look, I'm tired of telling what they're arguing. They just brought some serious charges once again. The trial's two years old now. It's now they can't even find the eyewitnesses. They don't even know who the eyewitnesses were. There, there's really no... Um, rightful trial to be had here, but they're going to have it anyway. Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So he goes, once again, he goes, look, I haven't done anything wrong to the Jewish people, to the temple of God, or to Roman, the Roman Empire. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on charges before me? So Festus, uh, that kind of translates to Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. Festus, a coward who wanted to make sure that everybody still liked him, Festus goes, hey, I got an idea, Paul. Why don't we go back to Jerusalem and we'll do this trial there? It was really Festus, it was his attempt to prolong the decision because he didn't want to make it because he, he knew there was really no uh, verdict, there was no guilty verdict that he could even pretend to make up, but he didn't want to release Paul. So he goes, let's just go back to Jerusalem, right? Paul says, I'm standing right before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12, then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So they're in the middle of this trial, and Festus goes, hey, let's go back to Jerusalem. And I'm sure Paul's going, hey, Festus, you're new here, but they don't really like me in Jerusalem. Last time I was there, tried to kill me. I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. Not really a warm vacation spot for me. People try to kill me there. Let's not do that. So Festus goes, well, I'll go. I'll be the judge. We'll go there. And Paul has this argument. He kind of just, he rebuts back to Festus' question. He gives him five good points. He says, look, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. In other words, he goes, look, I'm where I'm supposed to be. If I've broken any laws, I am in the court that I'm supposed to be. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Paul's like, I'm not supposed to be anywhere. I'm supposed to be right here. The second thing he says is this. And to the Jews, I haven't done them any wrong. He goes, look, Paul says, look, I haven't done anything wrong to the Jews. And they've accused me of wrong things they can't prove. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to go back to Jerusalem so they can be the accuser and the judge. Here's what, here's what um, Paul's saying. Look, if you make the accusations that somebody's done something wrong and then you judge that person, aren't you going to agree with yourself? Right? If you accuse, hey, you've done this wrong, you've done me wrong this way, or hey, you know, if you've got like that crazy aunt or uncle or, or family member, if you don't have one, you are that one, and, and you're sitting there at Christmas, or you know, Christmas, and you're like, they're, they're going to do something crazy, and then they do something crazy, you go, see, I told you. Right? When you're the judge and the accuser, you always agree with yourself. If you don't, then you've got some issues we need to talk about. If you're like, I think that person's wrong. No, they're not. All right, if you start that, then, then you're, you're, we, we'll, we'll pray for that. Right? And so here's the deal. Paul says, look, I'm not going back. They, they accuse me. Why would they not judge me guilty? They're the ones who said I was guilty in the first place. Verse 11, he says, and if I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. Later in Philippians, Paul's going to say it this way, to live as Christ, to die as gain. So Paul's arguing in court. He goes, look, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Look, it's not a Jewish trial, so you can't send me back to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I'm not a coward, so if I've done something wrong that deserves death, just kill me. Right? Not easy to argue with that guy. When you're like, we'll kill you. All right, kill me. That's fine. If that's what has to happen here. Paul, for Paul, he said, Paul's understanding of death was this. If Paul died, he was going to heaven. If Paul lived, he was taking more people with him to heaven. Either way, Paul was all about heaven, about the glory of God. So he says, look, I'm where I'm supposed to be. This isn't a Jewish trial. Hey, if you're, if you're going to kill me, let's just get it over with right now. Right? So which I'm sure Festus is going, what in the world's going on here? Right? Keeps going. He goes, hey, but there's nothing against the charges against me, so no one can give me up to them. In other words, he says this. There is no trial here. Now, let me just tell you, if Ryan is arguing his defense here, at this point I go, I'm where I'm supposed to be. If I'm guilty, charge me. There's nothing for me to be charged with. At this point, I'm going, I have the right to dismiss the trial. I have the right to be released, right? But that's not what Paul argues. Paul says, look, there's absolutely no charges that will stick. Therefore, I appeal to a higher court. Like Paul says, look, he could get off. He knows it. He's argued well. But at this point, Paul says, look, I'm going to appeal. I want you to send me to Rome. Right? Now, I don't know if Paul was smart and he just knew that he was going to Rome because Jesus told him he was going to Rome. And he's like, well, if I'm going to Rome. I'll just make them pay for it. I don't know if that's what it was. I, I don't know if Paul was going, hey, look, those people really don't like me. So even if I get released, they'll probably kill me in the parking lot. But really, what it probably was is this. Paul understood that his responsibility to the gospel far outweighed his rights. Like that's the, the point, the big idea to this morning, this, this passage. It gets to this point where Paul has the right to be released. But he goes, no, 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 no. My personal rights are far outweighed by the gospel. So Paul knew he had been radically saved. He had been given life, that he was dead in his sins. And Jesus died on the cross and gave Paul life. So Paul goes, look, um, I am, the, the weight of the gospel on my heart is so heavy that I know I have the right to be released but I have the responsibility to appeal and to take this to Rome. Now, I want to talk this morning in in the truth of the fact that life is not fair. I just want to spend our time this morning talking about, well, what are our rights and responsibilities? It's true. Life's not fair. So what rights and responsibilities do we have in an unfair life? And when I talk about rights and responsibilities, when I talk about rights, I'm talking about um, when you begin sentences with, I deserve, 
what you're claiming is a right. It's rooted, rights are rooted in entitlement. That when we are entitled to things, we would say, I deserve. The main question is, what do you or what do they owe me? What does the government owe me? What do my friends owe me? What does my family owe me? What is my work? What is my school? What's owed to me? What, am I, what, what should I be getting? That's, that's rights, that's entitlement. I have the right to be owed something, right? Now, the problem with rights is that um, the debt you think you're owed only grows, like what you think you're owed, it's never really satisfied. You know, I know this every year about this time. Uh, if, you're, uh, uh, if you own your own business or if you're in, a, in HR, uh, people start talking about raises, right? It's that time of year. Like, am I going to get my raise for next year? And, and, and people uh, think they owe or are entitled to a raise. And some people, you work real hard and they should pay you well, and that's okay. But we get to this point in the season where it's like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to get my, my, my oh, I'm just, I deserve this raise. Now, the reason I know that that, that won't satisfy you is because if you fast forward 11 more months, I don't think you're going to come back and go, you know what, you gave me a raise last year, and that's all, I, that's all I deserve, so don't worry about this year. I don't even need the cost of living thing. No, next year they're coming back going, hey, cost of living, it's like 3.2%. Who, who, where'd you get that number from? I made it up. Everybody else makes it up, 3.2, right? So it, it, in our desire to get what's rightfully ours or what we deserve, it's never satisfied. Now, responsibilities are a little different. Responsibilities, instead of what I deserve, responsibility is rooted in, um, so what, what do I own? What's my ownership? What will I do? We say I deserve rights, but I will. It's rooted in ownership. And true biblical responsibility is really rooted in this. What do I owe him? What do I owe him? God who created us, gave us physical breath, physical life. We would not exist without his creation. And not only did he give us physical life, but through his son on the cross, he gave us spiritual life. So responsibility begins to get rooted in, well, what do I owe him? Right? Say, what do I deserve? What's the world owe me? Responsibility turns around and says, what do I owe him? Right? Now, I, I want to talk a little bit um, this morning about our culture and, and our role in culture. And I'm going to say some things this morning that, that may even have a little bit of a stab at our culture at our country, at our culture, and I want to say this before I even get into it, um, I love America, right? I, the red, white, and blue, I love it. I love Christmas, and I love Fourth of July, and if I could figure out how to put them together, I would, right? Like, if you like baby manger, baby Jesus in a manger, and like a fireworks show over that, that's awesome. That's awesome. If we could eat, if we could stop eating turkey, like, we're the only country in the world who eats lunch meat on our holidays. Like, I'm just... Let's get over that. Let's go, let's eat some, some barbecue and some steak on Christmas. And then let's go outside and have a fireworks show, right? Then like Jesus, like he can spell Jesus in the sky. It'd be awesome, right? When I think about the nativity and the angels showing up to the shepherds, there were fireworks. You just need to know that in my head. That's why they were afraid. They were really big fireworks, right? So I love America, but here's what I've realized about rights and responsibilities in America. First of all, two things. First of all, I've, I've realized and learned this. In America... We really love our rights. Like, we really love our rights. Like, in elementary school, you learn about the Bill of Rights, and, and I'm all about our rights. I love our country. I love the fact that we've got um, the government that is, that is protecting the people. But here's what we will do. We love our rights to the point that we'll just get silly about it, right? I mean, like, what, two weeks ago, Phil Robertson made some comments to a magazine, and I'm not really going to even get into what he said. I'm just gonna, he may have not said it as uh, graciously as you can talk about that subject. But Phil Robertson made some comments to a magazine, and then A&E decided, as an employee, they didn't agree with what he said, and so they leveraged their rights, and they gave him a suspension. Now, when I got on Facebook, I, I saw just all kind of just goob, goobers go, what happened to his freedom of speech? And, and I'm going, it wasn't, it wasn't, nothing happened to his freedom of speech. Like, he's not in jail, right? Just like he has the freedom to say whatever he wants, however he wants, A&E also has the freedom to go, hey, you can work here or not right? I'm telling you, if one of my employees said something really, really dumb and it got published all over the world, they might get a little suspension, right? Hey, I love you and you have the freedom to say that, but you can't say it here for a week. You need to go pray and quiet for a week and we'll see you back in a week, right? And so we, we go crazy. And man, I, I think Christians are, we get really, really, we, go, we look really silly sometimes on Facebook when we start arguing about his freedom of speech. And look, wh- whether you agree what he said or not, right? His freedom of speech was, was never, you know, he said what he wanted to say. And he's not in jail. That's called freedom of speech, okay? So we love our rights, even to the point that sometimes we get a little crazy, right? If the price of ammo goes up like five cents, right, people get crazy, especially here, man. This thing, we got more heat in this room than a church in Texas. All I'm saying is we are well, 
protect. But cents go, ammo goes up five cents, and all of a sudden, it's a right to bear arms issue, right? No, I'm still bearing arms. I just got to work a little harder to get the ammunition in it, right? All right? So we go a little crazy. Even we go crazy, right? We also do this. We are intolerantly tolerant in this country, right? Here's what tolerance is in our country, the right the freedom of speech. Here's what tolerance is in our country. As long as you believe the same thing I, I believe, you can say whatever you want. Okay, that's not actually tolerance, Okay? Tolerance is say what you want, I'm going to say what I want. And even if they don't line up, we're going to listen to each other. So in our country, we, we love our rights so much, we'll claim right freedom of speech and not even understand what we're talking about, right? We will look pure silly. The other thing I know about our country is this, is that not only do we love our rights, but we also understand that you have to give some rights up to get rights. It's an exchange. And at the core of that, I love it, because at the core of that, what it says is that we understand that we have a responsibility at some level, right? Now, some of our understandings of responsibility in our country are higher than others. But even at the most lowest common denominator, we understand that there's some responsibilities we, uh, we have to our country. Here's what I mean. You have the right to drive whatever car you want to drive, right? And in our country, you don't have to be able to afford it. As long as you can get the loan, you can drive it for like, you know, three months, and then they'll come take it back. But you can drive whatever you want. Now, if you get in your car and you get on San Pablo and you go 150 miles an hour down the road, guess what? The police aren't going to go, well, they've got the right to drive whatever they want to ride, whatever. But they're going to go, no, you have the right to remain silent. That's what they're going to tell you. What you lack is the ability. And so what they're going to do is they're going to tell you, hey, you've given up some rights. You have the right to drive whatever you want. But you don't have the right to drive it as fast as you want. Why? Because at the core level of rights is the understanding that we willingly give up rights and take responsibility, right? If you don't believe me, just show up next week naked to church, right? Just come on naked to church, and when you get there, just go, hey, it's Adam and Eve Sunday, right? And the pre-fall, that's what's up, right? Here's what I'm telling you. you. You have the right to be naked in your own bathroom, in your shower, right? You show up here naked and claim Adam and Eve, like, you know, hey, I'm here for the sex talk for the teenagers. You're not getting in the door, right? You're awkwardly going to be tackled, right? And I'm not going to be doing that, because that's just weird, Right? Or just slap your neighbor right now. Just like, I got the right to slap my neighbor. You know what? If you do that, one of our Nehemiah security team members will walk you out right now. Because we know at the core level of who we are that we have rights. But we give rights up and take responsibility. It only grows exponentially when we look at the cross. When we understand that we have a responsibility to give our rights up. That when we make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, what we are saying is that you are now in charge. I'm not good enough. I can't save myself. I can't fulfill myself. All I can do is get myself in more of a hole. And we go, Jesus, I surrender. You're my Lord and Savior. What we're saying is that my responsibility to the gospel now fully outweighs my rights to serve myself. When we make him Lord, we're going, look, I am giving you all my rights. And now I'm just going to take on responsibility for the gospel. You see, Paul understood this. Paul understood it this way. He, Paul knew it would be better for him to go to Rome and die than serve himself. Paul knew that it would be better for him. It would be, it would be wiser of him. It would be better to die than to not do what God's told him to do. And now here, here's, what, here's the truth. If, if we talk about that we've given up our rights to serve others, We've given up our rights to serve ourselves because at the core of the gospel, we now say we have a responsibility to the gospel. I think for the most part, we would agree. If you are surrender your life to Jesus, if you are a Christian, at least with the, the philosophy, the theological statement that at the cross, we surrender our rights to serve ourselves and we take on the responsibility to the gospel. That we take on ownership, that we now owe God exponentially more than we could ever pay him. So at the core we would believe it. But the problem with, with a statement like that is that sometimes it becomes difficult to walk out. So what I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is walk us through just four buckets where the implications of, this, of the statement that our responsibility to the gospel outweighs our rights to serve ourselves. I just want to walk through four buckets where the implications where we're seeing them, right? Here's what I want to do. I want to create a little dichotomy between here's what I deserve. So when we approach each of these four buckets with an I deserve, with an entitlement mindset, and what does that look like versus what does it look like when we come to I owe. I owe the gospel. I owe Jesus. I owe the world. I have ownership. What, what can I give, right? Here's the four buckets. First one is this, just intrapersonally. So our, just your relationship with yourself and with God. Just spiritually, just your relationship with yourself 
and with God. We as human beings have the tendency to come to God as if he owes us. Like with this entitlement mentality of I deserve. And what we do is we come to God and we go, God, you, you owe us. You, there's something that we would come to the table and go, I think, God, you owe me this. It tends to come out in one or two ways. Either kind of a moral uh, deist way where we come to God and go, God, I have been so good. Like I have been so good. I, I've attended church and I read my Bible and I, I stopped cussing and, and I, I stopped watching movies. I mean, I just, I've been so good. This is how good I've been. Now, God, you owe me right? We think God owes us because our behavior was good enough. Or we come to him and go, God, this past year has been so awful that it's time for you to kind of, it's, it's, it's coming, right? Kind of a, a, karma, a karma approach to God. Like it's been so bad that the, the, the tide has to change now, right? Now here's the problem. Um, God does owe every single one of us something. Like we deserve one thing from God. And it's not that he would uh, reward our good behavior, and it's not that he would turn the tide of, of what season of life we've been in. The one thing each, every one of us in here has deserved from God is that because of our sin, we deserve death and hell, right? Now, I know that's not like the nicest thing to say the Sunday after Christmas, but I'm just a deliverer. So here's what you need to know. Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and missed the mark of God. Real quick, uh, if you're part of the all, if you're part of the everybody, just raise your hand. Uh, uh, Come on, now I can tell who's still paying attention. Awesome. If you didn't raise your hand, you weren't paying attention. So all have sinned. That means every single one of us has sinned. Here's what sin is. When we do something in character, word, deed, or thought that differs from the perfect holiness of God, right? So every single one of us has done something that has made us enemies of God. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what you have earned because of your sin or what you deserve is death. And not just like we die and you get put in a box, but eternal spiritual death, eternally separated from God in hell. That's what we all deserve. So when we come to the table saying, God, you owe me, God's going, yeah, I owe you, I owe you hell. But, but, this, but it's good. Because the Romans also says this, that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. That while we were still in the midst of rebellion, being an enemy of God who created us, God sent Jesus to the cross to die for us so that what we deserved, Christ took, and what he deserved, righteousness, eternal life with God, he gave to us. He swapped accounts with us. He got what we deserved, and we got what he deserved. And so my responsibility to the gospel starts with the fact that Jesus gave me life. Like, that's the starting point. It doesn't start with my behavior. It doesn't start with my circumstances. It starts with the fact that Jesus extended to me life, and I received it. That God bought me at a price, and now I have an eternal responsibility to the truth that God so loved the world. He gave his only son. So when I come to God, it's not, God, you owe me. It's, God, I owe you tremendously. Right? The second bucket is this, is, is interpersonally. Uh, and, and when I say relationships, interpersonally, and you just put every relationship in this bucket. Uh, your marriage, your kids, um, your parents, your, your family, all extended family, the people you work with, the people you hang out with, all the relationships, you just put them all in this bucket. Now we, uh, uh, as human beings, broken human beings, we can come to relationships and approach them um, contractually or conditionally. We come to a relationship saying, look, if you give me what I want, then I, in return, will give you what you want. And actually, we're asking this question, what do I get out of this relationship? What do I get from you? We have the tendency in our humanity to, uh, to use people and love things instead of loving people and using things. We have the tendency to engage in relationships asking, what can I get from you? We engage in our marriage and we go, what can I get from you? What, what are you going to do to make me a better me? We engage our kids and we begin to go, what are you going to do to bring me contentment and happiness? We engage our teachers. How are, what are you going to do to make sure I get to the next grade? And we engage our bosses. What are you going to do to make sure I get my paycheck? And we begin to engage all of our relationships with an entitlement mindset that says, I deserve. The problem here is that if we're engaging that mindset from both sides of the table with a contractional, conditional relationship, then no wonder, no wonder relationships are shattering. If both people in a marriage are going, what are you going to give me? It's dangerous. If, if a family is telling each other, what are you going to give me? What are you going to put into my bank account? What we begin to do is just suck each other dry of life and leave broken people. It's why God, when he met the Israelites, he entered into a covenant relationship. 
where God told the Israelites, Israel, I'll do everything that I've told you I'm going to do no matter what you do. And he told Israel, Israel, you do everything I've told you to do, even if I don't do what I want to do. A covenant relationship, a covenant marriage, a covenant relationship says no matter what, I'm bringing my, I'm serving, I'm coming to the table, and I'm going to serve you. A contractional relationship says no matter what, you're going to serve me. See, our responsibility to relationships is this, that we would die to ourselves daily to serve those like Christ served us. Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, he goes, look, if you want to be my disciple, here's what I want you to do. Pick up your cross daily. What does he mean? He means this, as believers in relationships, we are to die to ourselves daily. Every relationship I'm in, I'm to die to myself daily. Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6 talks about um, relationships, talk about work relationships, family relationships, and the marriage. And in every one, it talks about this submission to each other that mirrors the submission that we have to Christ, that Christ has to the church. That we're to submit ourselves to Christ, that we are to love, uh, men are told to love their wives, so they love their own body. Over and over again, it's this picture of dying to yourself to love and serve someone else. Now, here's the beauty of it, um, is that it moves from entitlement beyond appeasement. The danger is this, is that you go from entitlement, which is what are you going to do for me, to appeasement. And appeasement just simply, it's just as dangerous. It's what am I going to do to make you happy? That's not what the gospel says. The gospel doesn't, the, God does not command us to be in relationships to make each other happy. That's just as dangerous. It's called idolatry. If you live your life trying to make your spouse your children, your family, your friends, happy and content, then you will spend every bit of your energy serving them and you may neglect completely serving God. Here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to move from entitlement. We're not supposed to move to appeasement. We're supposed to move all the way to die to yourself, serve one another so that God gets the glory. That in every relationship, what we're doing is serving each other to point to the picture of Jesus serving us. Every single marriage, every single family, every single working relationship, we are to just die to ourselves to serve and in every relationship begin to go, hey, this relationship is a picture of the gospel. This marriage is a picture of the gospel. This family is a picture of the gospel over and over and over again. And here's the beauty when we move from contractual to covenantal. When we move from what do I get out of this to what do I owe him in this, right? Problems in contractual relationships, it's somebody else's fault, right? If you're not getting what you want, it's never your fault. It's somebody else's fault. But when we begin to treat our marriages and family and work relationships as a, I'm going to die to myself to serve you, then when a problem rises up, guess what? It's everybody's fault. It's everybody's problem to solve. Here's how I know if I'm doing okay in my marriage. Me and my wife, we fight occasionally. It's usually my fault. I'll just admit that on stage. Occasionally, we disagree on things. We argue. If you don't argue with your wife, then you're not passionate enough about life, okay? You need to grow up, all right? So I, occasionally, we disagree, and we fight well. And typically, about two-thirds of the way through the argument, I realize two things. I've tried to fix everything. I haven't heard a single word she said, right? If you're an amen in here, you should have just said amen. You're with me on that one. And then the other thing is I'll go, hey, babe, are you mad at me or are we mad at something? Because if you're mad at me, we'll both be mad at me. And if we're mad at something, we'll get on the same team and we'll beat it, right? So what I know about when I'm really trying to die to myself to love my wife and serve my wife, what I realize is that we are going to go at problems as a team. And we're not going to point and blame. It's going to be what can I give you, what can you give me, not what do I get out of it, right? Let's keep going. Third bucket, culturally. When we come to the cultural bucket uh, with an entitlement mindset, all we do is create an argument to win. Now, when, we, when I talk about culture, I'm talking about the fact that we, when we, uh, even in here, we live in here and in our world, in our city, we live in a culture. And the culture of America doesn't always uh, agree with us. It doesn't always agree uh, with where we stand biblically. It doesn't always agree with where we stand philosophically. And so when we begin to engage, if you as an individual begin to engage culture from an I deserve, I deserve to be right mindset, all we do is create an argument to win. I deserve to be right. Now the statement I deserve to be right implies you deserve to be wrong. The problem is, is that when you and I are arguing about cultural issues, you're arguing from the I deserve to be right and so am I. And so somebody's wrong, but none of us, neither of us are going to acknowledge it, Right? 
So here's, here's, here's a few arguments that we are really kind of talking through and culturally. Uh, I'll start and I'll, I'll kind of ease into these, but there's, there's the immigration conversation. There's the economy, right? Um, there's health care, right? Our, our government has been an incredible model of how to engage each other uh, in dialogue, right? Half of them are like, we're for, we're for this, uh, uh, this health care, universal health care, and we're not going to listen to you until you pass it. And so what does the other half do? Fine, we'll just shut the government home and go on vacation, right? So they're not really the best model for how to talk to each other. Um, but we, we can get into this, right? Immigration, pro-life, marriage. Now, when we engage culture, and those are relevant topics in culture. And as individuals, if we walk into it with an entitlement mindset of I deserve to be right, all we've done is created an argument that no one can win. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have biblical stances and foundation for those topics. I'll just take one. I'm I'm pro-life. Like when I read the Bible, um, I I just believe that that abortion is a sin, right? And before you check out, I just want to say this. I think God who called it a sin is the same God who's big enough to forgive and redeem. And so I'm not going to back down from what I believe, but I'm also not going to walk into culture and go, I'm right, you're wrong, let's fight. Because that doesn't do anything for the gospel. All that does is create an argument that no one can win. And no one can find redemption in that. Here's our responsibility. Here, Jesus taught it to his best. Uh, Jesus didn't simply have a viewpoint on sin. More importantly, he had an action plan. Just think about this. Uh, Jesus had a view on sin that literally cost him his life. That's a pretty strong opinion. But he didn't just have an opinion on sin. Jesus had an action plan. Jesus engaged culture. He spoke to culture. But he didn't just point fingers and go, I'm right, you're wrong. He had an action plan in which he was going to create solutions for the problem. Not arguments for the problem, but solutions. Here's what I mean. There's a couple of ways that we as a church are trying to do well at this. Um, One is this, is that we are pro-life. Our church is pro-life. And we could just argue that. We could point to scripture scripture and we can say, here's where we are. Um, Or we could be active in trying to create solutions. So we're partnered with a local ministry, local uh, uh, partnership called First Coast Women's Services. And they are in the field. They're out in the city doing some amazing work and showing young couples and showing young women and, or, and sonograms and, and showing them here's what life looks like. And they're doing ministry to people um, who in the past has, has chosen uh, uh, abortions. And they're, they're engaged in, in meeting the need and creating a solution. And so we are fully behind them. Another way our church does this is that um, we're, it, what happens when there is a life but the parent can't take care of it? Well, adoption is a great, great option. So our church fuels a thing called Operation Adoption. And once a month we have an adoption gathering here at the church where we educate, inform, inspire people in our church who are going, hey, it's not enough to just have an opinion. I want to have an action plan. Another way we're doing this is, is through, uh, we really don't like poverty. Like we're not fans of poverty at the church here. We, we, we think poverty um, cripples people, and there's joy that Jesus would want them to have that they can't have because they're in the handcuffs of poverty. And we could have an opinion on it, but for us, community transformation is not just a viewpoint. It's a call to action. It's why we're partnered with our local partners throughout the city who are in, uh, in the trenches doing the work, and we are fueling them, funding them, sending people to them. It's why we're partnered with the Compassion International, an international ministry that's releasing children from poverty in the name of Jesus. And we send thousands of dollars out from this church all over the world because we want to have an action plan. It's why we take our, our uh, global mission, local and global mission trips. I mean, this summer, uh, students are going to South Carolina. There's a trip coming up to South Carolina that's closing. It's closing in January. There's two Brazil trips that are closing uh, in January and one to Jamaica. And we got trips, and I'm only telling you they're closed. There's a bunch of other trips. There's like 20-something trips. But those are the next trips that their sign-ups end in a couple of weeks. Why? Because it's not enough for us just to go, we want to end poverty around the world. But we want to be active and have an action plan in ending poverty locally, across the United States, and around the world. As believers, we're not entitled to an opinion, but we're responsible for actions. So as believers, it's not enough just to have an opinion on something. Jesus didn't just have an opinion. He had an action plan. The last bucket, I want to walk you through this last bucket, um, is really our church and our responsibility in culture. Now, before I can spend time with our church's responsibility in culture, I just for a second need to back up and and talk about um, your responsibility to the bride of Christ or my responsibility to the church, our, our individual responsibilities 
to the church. In the country we live in, um, it is very easy for church to be something that you come and consume. Like we live in a consumeristic culture. Like you can't, you can't go anywhere without seeing some kind of ads. Uh, we shop when we want to buy a car or buy a computer. We spend a lot of time doing the research. And it's just ingrained in us as Americans. We tend to walk into churches and begin to have a consumeristic approach. You begin to go, how, how did you like the music? Um, how did you like the preacher? Was he good looking today? Absolutely. He's very good looking today, right? So check that one off, right? And we begin to get, what was, how was the temperature? And what were the kids' programs? And what, what, what are offered? And we begin to not ask, do I belong in this body of Christ? We begin to ask, what is this church going to do for me? Right, it's part of the reason why here at the Church 1122, we have uh, not done membership yet. Really, there's two reasons. One, there's a lot of you, so we've got to figure out to make sure we do it right, right? Because membership's a big deal. The other reason is this, is that we want to make sure that as a church, we understand that when you become a covenant member at the Church of 1122, you don't get any rights, right? There are no front parking spots for members. I'm just going to tell you, when you're a member, we're actually going to show you where the Winn-Dixie is and go, hey, you could park back there, right? You get responsibilities. You don't get rights as a church member. You, you own the mission and vision of the church, Right? In a couple of weeks, we're opening up the sanctuary, which is going to have a live video venue that happens during service. Live music and a video sermon that's live from the stage. And we're going to ask several hundred of you to go over there. Why? Because we have a responsibility to make sure we have enough seats in here that when our guests come, they can sit in here and hear the gospel. And so when we move into the church with the role of entitlement, it becomes, I'm a consumer. But when we let the gospel shape our view of the church, then what we realize is that we don't consume church. Church is a mission that we live. We move from consumers to missionaries. I love the fact that when Jesus came to rescue us, he didn't just rescue us and put us on the sideline, but Jesus rescued us and gave us a rope and said, hey, welcome to the rescue team. And so as a church, when we, what we are calling, when we say disciple-making disciples, what we are, are praying for, for our people, is that you would move from a consumer mindset, which may have been what God used to get you in the door. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying if it lasts long, it's not healthy. To come in the door and go, this is, my, this is where I want to go to church. We want that to move to, this is my family. This is my body. I show up on the weekends and recharge because I'm going right back out these doors and I've got a missional life to live. And we've got to get that right because our role as a church and our culture is huge. It's huge. Here's, here's where we come to the table with a sense of entitlement when it comes to our culture. Um, the church as a whole, and maybe some of us in this church, but definitely the church as a whole, um, has a little bit of entitlement when we start talking about the culture around us. And here's what I mean. Christendom is, is, is dying. Like the, the cultural uh, connectivity between government and church, between, uh, between just the thought of society and biblical values are, are just breaking and tearing apart. And we're in a season where we're going to see our culture move further and further and further away from a biblical grounding, right? And here's where the church gets in danger, because we will go and go, we deserve you to see things how we see things. And what we're demanding or what we are entitled to is that the world that does not even believe the Bible is true, we demand that world to have a biblical worldview. It, it's absolutely foolish, it's even a little bit arrogant that we would go to people who don't even believe the Bible is true and go, you better believe what we believe. Like, we're entitled to share a view on marriage. We're in, we're, we feel like we're entitled the world would share our view on life, would share our view, right? And so we begin to engage the world with this sense of entitlement. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous for the culture. It's dangerous for the church. Here's what we should do. We should model the gospel. See, even as you and I were enemies of God, rebels against God, what did he do? While we were still sinning, he sent his son to die on the cross. He acted in love. Even when we were his enemies, he was loving us sacrificially. And here's what it looks like. It looks like as a culture, we will disagree with people. It's okay. What we should do when there is drastic disagreement is this. We should love without an agenda. Keeping in sight the urgency of eternity. Now, I'm not just saying, like, feel good, love, ooh, everything's great. I'm saying love without a, hey, I'm trying to hear, I'm here to win the argument. I'm here to convince you you're wrong. I'm just saying, what if you just love someone with the reality that you loving them may change their eternity? The second thing we do is we fight for the heart, not the wind. 
See, the problem when you go into culture with an entitlement issue is just the same thing as when you go into uh, personal relationships. If I'm right and you are wrong, then there is no way in a church and culture for us to ever uh, agree. Because we're both just going, you're wrong. You're wrong. But instead of fighting to win, we begin to fight for the heart. We begin to fight to know the person. To say, you know what, you and I disagree, and I would not live the lifestyle you live, but man, I love you. Because while we were still sinning, Christ is looking at us going, I would not live the lifestyle you live. I would not make the decisions you make, but I will go to the cross for you. The third thing we do is we're loving without an agenda as we're fighting for the heart. Here's what I want you to know. People will agree with you a long time before they agree with what you believe. People will agree with you a long time before they agree with what you believe. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I worked uh, for the football team at the University of Georgia for a little while. And um, while I was there, like, Coach Rick loves Jesus, and I was a ball boy, and I loved Jesus. And then the connectivity between me and him, there was not a whole lot of Jesus loving across the board. I'll just admit it. Uh, more people love Jesus at Georgia than Florida, but that's just, that's just a known fact. I don't have to say that. And so there were some people that, um, that had heard about God and grew up learning about God. And so I just decided, you know, I'm just going to love them. Right? I'm just going to love them where they're at. I'm not going to condemn them. I'm just going to love them where they're at and just walk with them. And so, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I got free Waffle House because I was the phone number that the drunk guys called from downtown. And I was not going to live their lifestyle, but I was going to eat their Waffle House, right? And so I it chose for four years that I was not going to condemn them and break them. I was just going to love them. I was going to fight for their heart. And I got a Facebook message the other day from a friend um, who who was kind of part of that culture, part of that. He played for the football team, and he sent me a message saying, hey, you and Pastor Joby, I've been listening to your podcast for months, and it's absolutely righted my track with God, that my relationship with God is growing because of what you're doing. Now, I'm going to tell you, I could not have, um, I could not have won him to the Lord by beating him up over, dis- over stuff we didn't agree on. But instead, I'd go, hey, don't forget, don't forget what you, you know the truth, and you know Jesus. And pursue them. And I love you. And I'll love you even if you don't. And so when we engage culture, we got to be okay. We go, we're going to love you even if we never agree. And we got to pray that one day that culture will agree with us. And then even later begin to agree with our beliefs. Here's the, here's the final thought. I'm going to wrap this up here. So we say here at Church 1122 that we're a movement for all people. Right? Here's what you need to know. When we say we're a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus... What we are implying is that we open the doors wide open and everybody gets to come in. There is no uh, uh, evaluation or prerequisite or quiz to get in our doors, right? We know, I know for a fact that every weekend we have people who drastically disagree with the, with the gospel that's preached on the stage. Uh, even this morning, I know we've, we've got men and women in this, in this room this morning who would say, hey, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, and that's drastically different from what I believe. Like, I believe there is a God and I believe he is knowable and his name is Jesus. And so we love the fact that we are a church that people go, hey, I'm going to come in and check this thing out. And if we're going to be a movement for all people, and the people sitting on your row in front of you and behind you drastically disagree with you on marriage, on life. You just fill in the blank, right? Now here's what, here's what is, I love about our church. We are not going to back down on biblical stances. We're going to take the gospel. We're going to read the gospel. What the Bible says, we believe. We're not going to back down from what we believe. But here's what we're also not going to do. We're not going to use what we believe to bulldoze people who differ. We're not. We're going to be a church that you can come on in and you can engage it and you don't have to agree with us because what God's called us to do, our responsibility to the gospel, it's not that we would be right, but that we would, we'd find out what do we owe God. Jesus said the most important thing we can do is love God and love his people. And so we're going to be a church that will not back down on what we believe, but we will never use what we believe to bulldoze people. We're going to engage culture. We're going to love culture. Philippians 1, 27 says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul writes to the church of Philippians, he says, look, the way you live your life should be worthy. It should measure up to the fact that the gospel is this. You were dead in your sins, and now you have life through Christ. That your life would measure up to that. And then he tells them how to do it in Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here's what he tells the church in Ephesus. Here's how you walk out life with responsibility to the gospel. When you're responsible to the life-giving message of the gospel. When we as a church and individuals are responsible that we've been reconciled, so now we can go reconcile others. That our relationship with God was fixed, so now we are agents of fixing other people's relationship with God. Here's what we do. We walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Here's what we do. We walk with humility. We walk with gentleness. We walk with patience. And we bear with one another. Why? Because he walked with patience and humility and gentleness with us, and we are now part of that ministry. So here's, here's how I'm trying to do it, and I want to encourage you with this. Three things. Uh, number one, remind yourself daily of what you deserve and what you got. Every day I just try to remind myself, and I, I pray that you'd join me and remind that I deserve death and hell, and I got life and sonship. The second thing we're going to do, we're going to do this right now, I give you an opportunity, is we as a church and as individuals, we just need to repent of entitlement. We just need to repent of the areas that we believe somebody owes us something. And just repent and go, you know, the only thing I, only thing I deserve, Jesus took. And so I just repent. I repent of thinking somebody owes me something. And then the third thing is this. Is let's just be responsible to the gospel. Let's just own the gospel. Let's own the fact that God's called us to be those who would go out as the church and reconcile, not argue, not win, not point blame, but we would go out and reconcile broken relationships. So we've got a little time now uh, for us to respond, and so if you'll stand, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give us a little time to maybe come and repent, maybe come and even um, declare that we're going to go out from here. We're going to sing, we're going to declare the goodness of God, and in this moment, we're going to repent. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and God, thank you that you first loved us. God, I just admit... um, that we have a sense of entitlement where we think the world owes us agreement. But God, what you've called us to do is just to go love anyway. That we'd love boldly. That we would fight for the heart. God, that when entitlement rises up in us, that we would repent and kill it. And God, we would walk owning the fact that the gospel has saved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.